This podcast is a project of the Innovative Space for Asian American Christianity. It is funded by the Louisville Institute in order to help Asian American and Latina women get the tools they need to become more effective preachers. Welcome to the seventh episode of When Women Preach. We have two guests here today from the Fuller Youth Institute based in Pasadena, Jane Hong Guzman de Leon and Jennifer Geraldana. And I'll let each one of them introduce themselves a bit about their work at the Institute, as well as other things they're involved in, as they are two very involved people. So Jane, why don't you go first? Sure. Hi. I've worked in pastoring for over 10 years. Um, I worked in probation before that. I was also a junior high English teacher. Now I'm at Fuller Youth Institute as a project coordinator for the Living a Better Story uh, project. And we turn research into resources. And we really empathize listening, um, listening to people, listening well. So I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, hello, uh, Jennifer Geraldana here. And I serve uh, as the Multicultural Initiatives Manager at Fuller Youth Institute and have also been a pastor, a youth pastor. And my first love is actually social work. So I practice social work in North County, San Diego. But the title that's most important to me is friend to Jane Hong Guzman de Leon. So I'm just really excited to have uh, a sister, a colleague, and somebody who I just really trust in these conversations. Oh, same here. This summer just kind of brought up a lot of, um, you know, events, unfortunate events um, that highlighted the police brutality that's always been going on in our country. And obviously, as preachers, our job is to um, profess that. And how have you each navigated those conversations in your communities? Well, I've re-engaged practices of deep breathing. I tried to dance once a day. I sometimes cuss as a spiritual discipline. <laughs> it's just um, the amount, the range of emotions by which my body has to navigate in a matter of 10 minutes uh, could be quite wild. And so I, I vividly remember uh, being in my kitchen table with my two other roommates and all of us just completely speechless. And it's going to give you a picture. I am uh, of Guatemalan descent. My two other roommates, one's uh, from El Salvador, the other one's from Mexico. And we are a very vivacious home. Uh, silence is not something we practice <laughs> around here. Uh, but there, it just got to one day where we were eating dinner and all we could do is share silence. And that's, I just looked around and I said, ladies, like, how are we doing? And we just looked at each other and teared up and said, we don't even know, you know? And so it's, I think this last couple of months have been the relentless job of trying to constantly rehumanize my sisters, my brothers, my friends, my colleagues, uh, my family members who constantly get dehumanized in media dehumanized in speech, dehumanized from pulpits. I think I've just spent my last couple of months just doing my best to look into the eyes of those I love and say, you get to breathe, you get to dance, you get to cuss, you get to smile, you get to kiss, you get to, you get to be human. Right. I appreciate that you bring up um, letting those folks who are, you know, most affected by these events to rest and to take a breather and to be human because, you know, a lot of times people are very quick to rush to action and it's like the ones that are the most affected and the most tired are, 
are the ones who do that work too. And I, I really appreciate that she remind us to um, take care of ourselves as well and our spiritual um, well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Resistance comes in many shapes and forms. And so the, the movement for, towards justice needs, needs the body of Christ and the body is diverse in its response, uh, appropriately so. And so for the ways that my grandmother cannot pray with her feet in a protest, she feeds, she, she, she does what she does in the movement of justice. And so, um, yeah, it's just been to take up guard and say, okay, what can I do? And how can I also care for my sister, particularly as my roommates, since we're also in quarantine. <laughs> right. So, it's a uh, huge we, duty. Yeah. So can we march together and then we make meals and make sure that where we get to be human. But how about you, Jane? How have you been navigating these last months? Yeah, I think I've just been really spending time um, educating myself more, you know, and I think that's really important in order to um, talk with others. I think it's important to empathize and listen to various sides. I, I feel like um, a lot of the conversation has become so polarizing and it's as if there's only like two extreme sides without really understanding what's going on. And so I feel like as Christians um, and as ministers, we need to like really listen and understand what's going on. We need to break down the myths and we kind of need to not dance around issues, but we actually need to face it head on. Um, and if we can try to really create safe spaces for people to process um to dialogue. I think it's got to go beyond prayer into action. You know, I totally resonate with what you're saying, Jen. It's just, it's just so much, you know, and it's like, sometimes you feel like things just aren't changing. You know, I, I, I went through um, the LA riots as a teen and, you know, I marched, protested with my dad and um, yeah, it's just, it's just overwhelming how our black brothers and sisters are, um, just constantly thrown to the wayside. And so um, in the in the rest, in the action, I think there really needs to be some good self-educating and processing in order to dialogue well. Yeah, I love that, Jane. I think that one of the unexpected gifts of quarantine is evenings where, where typically I would be out of the home in some ways. Uh, I have been so impressed and grateful for the work that many people have done to curate lists of resources, of books, of music, of podcasts, of movies. And I do think that there could be the, the myth of scarcity is all around us. And, you know, to think we're not enough, nothing's happening enough. Like the, the fear of not having or being or seeing enough. Um, but I have been so grateful for the abundance of people showing up for the abundance of resources. And I can wholeheartedly say there is no excuse to not do some homework. <laughs> um, right. I, I, I speak as a biased person. I am not married and I don't have children, but my life was pretty full before COVID and it continues to be full during COVID. And I know that Jane can speak to this as uh, living this from a different social location than I am doing. Um, but I have found myself with more cushions of time in some ways where I've been able to say, okay, if I can 
I could either binge watch uh, my favorite reality TV right now, or I can engage and know this a little bit deeper. Yeah. And as um, all of us women of color, I, I feel like our role in these uh, movements and in these, um, you know, cries for injustice are often, you know, the most active. And I wonder if either of you could speak to why that might be and how you think of that in terms of um, how women of color relate to the larger community in America. You know, I think tying it, Miriam, to the what you've been talking about, like the mothering God, um, mm-hmm. God's mothering side. There's a saying in Spanish that my mom often says when someone compliments me, um, and a rough translation of it would be when you uh, caress my child, you kiss my cheek. Um, and there was just this sense of when I see my Latina women step into it, there's just this universal belief that your child is my child, your your livelihood is my livelihood. And there is just this instinctual interconnectedness that, you know, um, in the middle of all this, uh, family members were still being deported. And so um, as as people were navigating that, um, my mom called me. She was tired. I mean, she had been in quarantine, but she broke quarantine. And of course, I was livid. I was not excited. And I was like, Mommy, gases, I guess that's as you know, where are you going? And then she just told me, like, someone in our community got deported, Jen. And we have to figure out rent and groceries. And it was just this moment that her body did not have to think twice to say, that's my child too. That's my family too. If they are hungry, then I'm hungry. And what I see in most women of color is this like instinctual kind of response of what do you need that I have? (laughs) I will give it to you. I will just give it to you. Um, And I think it's, it's when we, when we deeply understand God's mothering heart for all creation that when creation groans, no matter where the groan comes from, we respond. Yeah, I'm reminded of um, a, a photo I saw um, where somebody kind of wrote on their protesting poster, um, when George Floyd called out to his mama, mm. he called out to all the mm-hmm. mamas, right? So it's like moms report to duty. And I, I think there's just um, a little bit easier ability for women especially women of color to just go there and jump there, you know, um, just, and I think, I think when we talk about race and division and who has and who has it, I think starting back with like not starting from fear, as Jen mentioned, not starting from scarcity. It's not like, well, if I don't have enough for my child, I won't have enough for your child. It's not that. I think we really need need to jump in with empathy of like, oh my gosh, how is this happening to your children? I would never want that to happen to my children or my family members. And so like really jumping in with arms open um, and empathizing, not playing, uh, what's the term? It's um, playing the oppression Olympics, (laughs) right? Right, Where you're like comparing like, well, my people went through this. Like that doesn't help anybody. You know, and so something that I've been saying um, to some people that have just really been kind of struggling with, like, why do you say Black Lives Matter um, when all lives should matter? And I, I say, well, yet yeah, we, we know that all lives matter, but the point is, um, 
there's been such uh, trauma, oppression, inequality, injustice towards the Black community, the Brown community, that if we really say all lives matter, then then we really need to push for Black lives mattering, you know? I'm just saying, like, their fight is our fight. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what it's like, uh, Jane and Miriam, in your family and ethnic and cultural backgrounds, but particularly in my, in my family and in my experience with Latina uh, churches, uh, women also tend to be the carriers of stories much more than men get to do. I mean, the amount of times I have sat in the couch of my grandma's house and my abuelita starts to tell me the story that I, I know, I have heard, I know the intonation of her voice for the dramatic moment, I know where the story is going. And yet, I think my grandmother and my mother um, are are those are are the are the holders of the stories, and I also think stories are the more you, the more stories you know. I I see them as like a Velcro wall, where like the more you're able to attach yourself and go, oh, I know what that kind of feels like. And so it's hearing my grandmother's stories of growing up as a child of, of the military in Guatemala during some pretty traumatic, violent civil war and unrest in our country. Mm. It's hearing my mother's stories of having to navigate all the things we're talking about here, being a woman, being a preacher, being discriminated against. And so what I, I, what I admire about the way that women tell the story, the way that women in my life have told the story is that they never tell me the sugar-coated version. Mm. I am not a black woman, but there is enough suffering in me to to not to not opt out of seeing their pain as well you know because I think even with women of color we've got to be honest about the historical like there's something about the U.S. American soil that means different realities for different people (laughs) and so I could never I could never say I understand I can always say gosh I see you I empathize with you I am here with you what do you need that I have it's yours you know, the dynamics between men, women, um, people of uh, every gender on the spectrum, um, it just seems like, you know, obviously most of the oppression and injustice we see are the result of toxic masculinity, um, particularly white toxic masculinity. I was wondering, um, how has that been a factor in your lives um, as women who are called to ministry, called to empower their communities? And how has it influenced the way you engage with these things now? And that's a tough one. I would say in coming from an Asian American culture, like I've seen toxic masculinity in my cultural space too. You know, you, you know, sometimes maybe add on the, the white toxic masculinity of um, just white normative Christianity, things like that. Um, the patriarchy, it, it's just double whammy, you know? And so I feel like whether we're talking about patriarchy, toxic masculinity, I did want to kind of bring up a couple, um, like the biblical Christian principles to argue against toxic masculinity and patriarchy. And just two quick and easy ones. Um, I mean, there's so many that are used against women, but um, I would say one is, you know, the concept of woman, God making woman to be man's helper. And that word helper um, is Ezer in Hebrew. And that word is used again and again throughout the Bible, actually more to describe God as our helper. And so 
when that argument is used against women as, well, God made women to be man's helper as, you know, someone that should be less than, right? That's totally not the case because God is not less than us. And he is um, referred to as our, our helper, Jehovah Ezer, um, 16 times throughout the Old Testament, um, way more than women. So that's one um, little helpful tidbit that I, I found to be really freeing for me. I was like, wow, thank you, Lord, <laughs> you know. And another one, I, I actually teach a premarital counseling class. Um, and a lot of times that verse of um, submit to one another, you know, that uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, a lot of times I feel like we're only taught part of the Bible and not the whole Bible. And so we're taught wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That's in Ephesians 5, verse 22. But nobody reads verse 21, which says, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. And I don't know why they forget about verse 25, which is husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Uh, Christ loved the church by dying for the church. And so if... (laughs) Again, if this argument is used against women as like, well, you need to submit because you're a woman. And that's what it says. It's like, no, we're actually supposed to submit to one another. You need to die like Christ. And really, Christ should be the head. And so please don't use that argument against me. I'm not sure if you brought up police brutality in this question, but I know it's part of the the whole um, podcast. But I think what's in common is that need for control right? It's a, a group that needs to have power over another group. And so, you know, that power, I mean, there's different ways of going about it, but the, the toxicity is when it's controlling and oppressing. And um, I mean, sometimes it's so forceful, but I think the other dangerous side is when it's like slow and kind of under the radar, you know, kind of like um, death by a thousand paper cuts, right? when they're able to dance in the gray areas and say things like, hey, well, I'm not beating you. Uh, I'm not withholding a job from you, but they're still going to have just um, control over who you are and what you can do in just really toxic ways. I think that's when um, it just gets really dangerous. And unfortunately, it's very embedded in church culture, too. In my experience, I think I've, I've experienced like a spectrum of toxic masculinity and when you add the layer of race, so here's here's the conundrum I constantly find myself as. As a Latina, when I enter into a Latina uh, church context, the reality is that there are some things I have access to because I am a woman, where there's just these realities in our community. For example, when I was a youth pastor and I really wanted to get something done for the youth, um, I wouldn't go to the church board to get it done. I would go to the women who ran the kitchen and would let them know what my plan was. And they were on board and they got done. A hundred percent. And so I would forego this, the, the available structure ran by man. And I would just go to my ladies. And there was, there was a, a female card that I could step in and say, hermanas, like this is what we need to do. And they were all their children and they would organize and they would get it done without me to tapping into any of the, and then everybody would go, oh, wonderful. Look at the youth go. When I'm in white spaces, I am always invited first and foremost, most often because of my ethnic background. It's always a, oh, Jen, you come from a Latina background. You could bring a, a cultural perspective. 
And it's my gender that people forget <laughs> that sometimes I live in a feminine body that has particular realities to it. And so I think what that's created, it's I constantly have to wonder which identity politic I'm going to be asked to improv around. So when I step into mostly um, people of color space, it's the female reality that is just so policed to, you know, I was once asked if I was really ready to preach because my toenails were painted and I was wearing open-toed sandals as a high schooler invited to come preach for Youth Sunday. You know, it's in all these places where it was my femininity that was so policed in places of color. Um, and in a white spaces, we're like, I think we're cool with women, but it's, it's your ethnic background that we're going to police. Like, oh, well, my Guatemalan friend told me that blah, 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 blah. And I'm going... Well, that's so good for that Guatemalan friend of yours, but the gen in front of you is going to navigate this differently. And so this power over just comes down to like the need to know the rules, the need to be right, the need to have certain kind of order, the need to have linear thinking, the need to um, organize things in a way that makes sense for white normativity and any other way of doing it is seen as slow, unproductive, not maximizing, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think in the, in the Latina church context, it was always a demeaning of my intelligence and my strategic thinking when little did they know how much I was playing them because all my ladies were organizing in the kitchen and they just got to hear the good news. Um, so in both places, it just leaves me having to do so much more strategic work in my head to try to get the thing done because everyone's playing by rules that don't have me in mind. Because we've had to be subversive and find other ways of, um, you know, fighting for justice in the ways that people in power might can't notice. I feel like that's why women of color are just their prime organizers, their prime activists, their prime um, people who inspire others to advocate. Yeah. And, you know, I think another way that particularly white toxic masculinity has showed up in my life is that because it operates under a different logic and makes it constantly pushes me to doubt myself. <laughs> like there's, there's just a constant cloud of doubt. If I'm good enough, smart enough, you know, people say, you know, uh, most women of color struggle from um, imposter syndrome. And I'm like, yeah, and the perpetuator of that imposter syndrome is the logic of white male supremacy uh, because it's playing a game with us. And we're like, I'm not, I, I didn't sign up for this game. And, you know, I, I, I've always been so struck by the midwives. And now we say, Shifra and Pua, wow, how subversive to, you know, hide a child and then put him in. Like, we, we just make this story be so romantic. But in the moment, you're thinking you have two different logics of what it means to preserve life. Um, the, the, the pharaoh, which we continue to have so many pharaohs, are always going to be in the business of preserving their own life at cost of anybody else's life. And what we see in the midwives and when I see so much in my sisters of color and, and pastoras leading is this midwife ministry of it goes against the logic of the decrees, the economy, the politics, the social, like it just sounds stinking absurd. And yet it brings life and it preserves life. And it's not even their own child. <laughs> it's 
they're doing all this labor for Moses, a child for whom they are not going to, you know, reap most of the benefits that um, other people will. And so it, whenever I always know that I'm under siege of toxic masculinity and whiteness, when my very instinctual ancestral theological responses are seen as, as absurd, are seen as backwards thinking, are seen as not maximizing, are seen as, well, that just, just won't, that will take too long. Whenever that's happening, I have to constantly remind myself, Jen, you're introducing a logic they have never seen. And I am not sure that they're ready for it. And that's when I have to go, if you're not ready for it, I'm going to dust my feet, I'm going to shake my hands, and I'm going to move on. Because I cannot convince you of this. If you, if you look at me like the crazy midwife, then you're just losing out on the life that God can bring through these civil disobedience, non-white normative ways of leading. And I think women in my communities have always done it. And there's, there's a, there's a corito. So coritos are like spirituals of the Latina church and a rough translation of it would be like, um, God will make a way where you think there's no way. He makes a way out of no way. She makes a way out of no way. God makes a way out of no way. And, and, Every single one of the, the women's camps, the women ministries, women, there was always this unrelentless faith that God would make a way, a.k.a. we will make a way <laughs> out of no way. And I saw that being done time and time and time again, but it was always through the midwife move, uh, this unexpected, unlogical space or a different logic of power, leadership, motherhood and this making way for life that I don't see in the white men leading. I don't see their deep care for my livelihood. It's just get it done. As powerful and as empowered as we are by God to be leaders and to be changers, um, I still feel like women of color obviously are the ones who get burnt out the fastest because we're doing most of the work. And so I really appreciated that you, um, you know, brought up your own personal philosophy and your own words to yourself when you feel exhausted um, in the face of masculinity and in all obstacles you face as a woman of color. And I was wondering if, you know, Jane and maybe Jennifer too, if you have any other words, um, do you have any advice for other women, other Asian American Latina women um, who are experiencing just, you know, general discouragement and um, just exhaustion from having to fight, you know, masculinity and other toxic forces all the time? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, just find people that you can really work together with, you know, on all levels, right? So it, it might be with um, people of other generations. Um, like if you're doing youth ministry, it could be with parents as well as your college leaders or, you know, you want to have male allies. You want you want to have uh, people that can understand your heart for ministry, where you're coming from, and then can support on the sidelines, even if it's not through kind of like the normative ways. Um, and I would just really say, you know, first gain trust, then really try to um, just do your ministry and if and, and bring about, you know, positive, healthy change where it needs to be. Um, and if that doesn't happen, I think there comes a time and point where you might just have to move on. And what I've seen with um, a lot of you know, I will just speak for in, in my context, Asian American women is 
um, we're so loyal. A lot of times we, <laughs> we will stay like forever because we love the community or whatnot, but um, might die inside. And so I think really responding to really answering for yourself, um, what is your true call from the Lord? And, and really partnering with God to do that more than just like, I got to be faithful to, you know, <clears throat> like th- the people that I'm with. I mean, not that that's, that's a bad thing, but I think there comes a time and point where if you're constantly bumping heads or there's a, a ceiling and you're like, wow, I really can't do um, what I'm called to do by the Lord, then, you know, you have to consider either, yeah, partnering with other people, you know, in another church or whatnot, or um, maybe starting your own. I think that's something that I've seen, like woman church planters. Um, that's like the fastest way <laughs> to to really kind of break out of the the patriarchy and the mass, uh, toxic masculinity, and you form a team and 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 do your own thing. And so I think just um, being surrounded by loving people and 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 praying for discernment is also really important. Yes, <laughs> I think of some of the research we've done even with young people, right? And and just we constantly remind leaders uh, when we train them on all these realities is that when sometimes the young people, um, we might interpret someone leaving their local church as an act of faithlessness, but actually for a lot of these young people, they just want the whole gospel, but they're going to leave your church to go find it. And mm-hmm. it was just this reality of young people are not leaving the church. They're just leaving yours. <laughs> uh, they're just leaving yours. You, the expression, it, it does not have the totality of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's some work that we need to do. So the same way, I think there's been times where I've had to walk away uh, recently and in other times to say, this this is a community that needs that needs this kind of leadership, but I need to go be made whole before I can preach or serve and step into that place again. And when I am at my most cynical, when I am at my most tired, exhausted, angry, um, the image that God continues to bring to mind is of, of, um, of leavening. I, I constantly am surprised at the way that bread even works. And I don't know a lot of the mechanics or the chemistry behind this, but you know, what would it, what does it mean to be a leavening? And I just think, you know, if I was leavening in a big piece of dough, like you, you look around and you think the dough is going to win because there's, it just by optics wise, there's a lot more dough than there is leavening. And yet in these moments of heat and this moments of, Oh, I don't know what's happening. Like, I just got, I am trusting God that the leavening will like reproduce and it will lead to change. And it's change that happens slowly. It's change that happens under fire. It is change that happens and transforms the DNA of the bread. But Mm -hmm. I am so eager for the overnight oats kind of space. Like I just want it to happen, right? Like how long? Have I, we've been talking about immigration reform. How long have we been talking about defunding the police departments? How long have we been talking about this? And granted, I learned about this in college, which was about a decade ago. So not that long ago that I've even been in this. And learning from this, we've been doing this for decades before me. And in that place of how long, it's I, 
may we not forget that yeast does indeed create change, but it happens in ways that are completely unexpected. Another thing that just came to mind that has been helpful in a lecture by uh, Elizabeth Fonda Frazier, she was talking about racism. And she said, you know, racism is self-perpetuating and not self-correcting. Therefore, it must be called out. And, you know, when we do speak into these places, may we know that we're not just being negative Nancys, that we're stepping into prophetic, um, a prophetic lineage of midwives and Esther and Vashti and so many of, and Mary and so many women who are our cloud of witnesses so that when we do speak, we don't speak just as, I never just speak as just Jennifer. There's a whole cloud of witnesses that accompany me and to say, you know, I think racism and all the isms is like toxic masculinity is toxic masculinity, racism, all these anti-immigrant narratives are self-perpetuating. They're not self-correcting. And so when you do have the strength to speak, speak clearly and speak boldly and speak with full authority and interrupt, interrupt when it is being perpetuated because that is what it means to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. It's, it's supposed to liberate us, not further and like make us slaves to what we're doing. And so as Jane says, step away, remember your leavening. But when you speak, interrupt and interrupt with no apologies. This podcast is a project of the Innovative Space for Asian American Christianity which is doing a number of projects in order to help Latinx and Asian American women become more effective preachers. If you'd like to check us out, our website is isaacweb.org.